Welcome everyone tonight and those who are out there on the internet <laughs> in your pajamas, you know, <laughs> church in your pajamas, you know, that kind of thing we used to do. Uh, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Father, thank you again for your grace to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the blessings that we share each day as you provide for us, care for us. And uh, we're thankful, Father, for the times we have to look into your word together and to seek to understand what you're saying to us as individuals and as a church. And we pray this might be that kind of time this evening and that you will use the Spirit to uh, cause us to reflect properly on the meaning of Scripture and therefore to see how it would affect and apply to us and correct, rebuke, and instruct us in the days ahead. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So I was just going to mention, uh, Pastor Larry said, if any men are able to stay afterward. They want to move some chairs in the auditorium, so I'm going to mention that now, so before I forget that this evening. So we're looking at the Gospel of John again, and we're looking at uh, week number five. Our memory verse is John 3.16. So all we have to do is just uh, remember the changes from the King James of the NIV, never do it. Uh, no, uh, well, let's try saying it together. Whoever believes in him, excuse me, <laughs> I, I jumped ahead to I jumped ahead to John three six to John three eighteen for next week. I'm sorry. <laughs> so let's try saying that together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay? So, for God so loved the world, um, and we'll get to that this evening a little bit. There's some controversy. I don't think if I mentioned the notes, some controversy about that in the notes, in the, in the translations there. For God so loved the world. We'll talk about that so maybe a little bit gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So eternal life and everlasting life are the same. It's just the same Greek word. Sometimes the King James would translate it everlasting life. Sometimes they translate eternal life. So it's just, I think the newer translations are trying to be consistent and say eternal life, but it's really the same thing. Um, our memory verse for next time is 318. This is a good verse because, um, you know, people think that um, they're okay with God. They, they think that uh, God, they're, they're not condemned. They're just, they're okay. And uh, as long as God doesn't mess with me, I don't mess with God and <laughs> that kind of thing. So, this is helpful, you know, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So this is another one of those 
realized eschatology things we talked about, where we'll talk about that a number of times, where John emphasizes uh, things that are ultimately future as though they're already here. I mean, Paul does that in that famous verse in Romans 8, those he called, remember Pastor Ken likes to talk about that verse a lot, those he called, he justified, that's us, and those he justified, he glorified. Well, it's past tense, but it's not, we haven't been glorified, but Paul just talks about it as though it had already happened because it's certain. And so we get a lot of that certainty here in the sense that ultimately those who haven't trusted Christ will be condemned at the great white throne. They'll get a sense of condemnation. But the point is, you know, they don't have to do anything to get that sentence. It's, in a sense, it's already passed, in a sense. It's already, it's certain to happen that if you don't trust Christ, you will be condemned. So that's a very helpful verse maybe to show people who think <clears throat> that, you know, they're in good shape with God uh, as they already are, even though they don't believe in Christ and haven't trusted Christ. Um, so, um, I just wanted to mention kind of where we are here, and uh, we had the prologue, John 1, uh, I mean, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, John 1, 1 through 18, and then we're into the public ministry of Jesus. That's the first 12 chapters, and on our, uh, on our um, slide there, you can see that we've seen... Uh, the baptism or John baptizing in the Jordan River, we're in the uh, John the Baptist baptizing, and then we see Jesus going up to Cana uh, for the marriage, you know, at Cana and the first miracle he does there. And then now we're back in Jerusalem again. Uh, we're back in Jerusalem because we've got, remember, Jesus came there for the first Passover. Remember, Jews, Jewish men were supposed to go, were required to go to three uh, festivals of year, uh, Passover, uh, a Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so we noticed in the Gospel of John, there's the first one was mentioned, and Jesus has now gone. He's lived in Nazareth. Uh, born in Bethlehem. So he's come back to Jerusalem, and now we're dealing with Nicodemus and the new birth, which we talked quite a bit about last time. We're looking at the interview with Nicodemus, 3, 1 through 21. Um, we looked at the circumstances, and now we're looking at the discussion. We, we've kind of gone over the major part in the sense the new birth is essential for entering God's kingdom, unless you're born again, Jesus says, or born from above, you can't enter. Uh, the new birth is experienced through faith in Christ. That's 313 through 21. Verse 13, uh, no one, now this is in quotation marks, so we're Jesus is speaking here. Sometimes in, in the Gospel of John, it's hard to distinguish when Jesus speaks and John speaks, but I think we're pretty clear on that, and you'll see if Jesus is speaking, we've got the quotation marks here. Uh, 
So Jesus says no one, to Nicodemus, has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I say here, that no one has ever gone into heaven so as to be able to speak authoritatively about heavenly things, but only the Son of Man who came from heaven. He is equipped to speak of heavenly things. So we're totally dependent upon the revelation from Jesus, the Son of Man. Remember that Son of Man is the, is the title that Jesus likes to use most often. Uh, it's identified with Daniel 7. The, that messianic figure is called the Son of Man. And so Jesus uses it as the messianic title, likes to call himself that. Uh, every time he, gets, he starts calling himself the Son of God, which he did, does occasionally, they rush out to stone him, you know. <laughs> and he's got a few years of ministry here before he is going to be crucified. So he doesn't call himself the Son of God all the time. He calls himself the Son of Man. And that way he can put his own meaning on it. He can explain what, he, what, that, what the Messiah means. Because they were looking for a political Messiah who would throughout the Romans set up his kingdom, which he will one day set up his kingdom, but it's not right now. That's not obviously understood uh, right now. So um, he's descended from heaven, amazingly. So here's someone who's been to heaven, who's come from heaven and able to tell us about things in heaven. Verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's speaking to Nicodemus here that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So I said Jesus has already explained the new birth using the symbols from Ezekiel, water and spirit. Now he turns to a narrative passage from Numbers 21, which gives the account of a plague of poisonous stakes which came among the Israelites in the wilderness and caused many deaths. You remember there in that story, God told Moses to make a bronze serpent and mounted on a pole, a high pole. And all who had bitten from this, uh, by these uh, snakes, these poisonous snakes, were spared from death if they looked upon that uh, brazen serpent on the pole. Um, so the, the, the Israelites were under the threat of physical death and they were asked to believe God. Believe God about what he says. If you do this, you will be saved from death. Uh, if they looked upon this brazen serpent up in their midst. Uh, and so new physical life was granted to them. So the point is, God, uh, Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you shouldn't think it's strange that God should grant spiritual life. He granted physical life to those who looked upon the serpent. And obviously there's a parallel, I say here, between the lifting up of the bronze snake and Jesus. When the verb for lift up is used in this gospel, and it's used a number of times, it combines the idea of Jesus being lifted up and exalted. He's lifted up on the cross. He's exalted. And he talk, when Jesus talks about his future death and resurrection, when the Son of Man is lifted up, lifted up. And so he uses that illustration of the brazen serpent, lifted up. And those who had faith trusted God, believed His Word, they were saved physically. And now those who believe in the Son of Man, when He's lifted up, uh, they'll 
they'll, they'll be saved. Uh, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. I say here the reason, uh, the author John is now speaking. Notice we don't have the quotation marks anymore. Uh, the reason here for God will lift up His Son to provide eternal life is now given in verse 16, the love of God. His love is so great that He even loves the world, the cosmos, the world system of mankind lost in sin. I was just going to comment on that so, for God so loved the world. Uh, if you read anything by Bible teachers or Bible, they'll always talk about the word so. I don't know what you think about when you hear the word so, for God so loved the world. When, when I hear it, and you know, we hear the King James, we hear it here, is we think He loved the world so much. He so loved them, you know, so loved, loved the world. But that's not what it really means here. It actually means, for God loved the world in this manner. The Greek word here means, for God loved the world so, that is, in this way, in this manner. Some translations will actually stick that in there. But the one thing about Bible translators is they're kind of afraid to mess with well-known verses. <laughs> You start changing well-known verses, and that's the first verse people look at when they get a new Bible. What's this? Wait a minute. They changed that verse? You know, what do they do that for? You know, So people are reluctant to change that so. Uh, I mean, you could, I, I think you could get that from so, but you know, I don't normally get it when I, for God so loved, I think of he's so much loved, you know. But the idea really here is he loved in this way. And what is the way he loved? That he gave. So that's the demonstration of, of his love, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So I say, the result of God's love for the world, the cosmos, which is in John, is this world that's in rebellion against God. Satan is the God of this world, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, the result of God's love for the world is that he gave his unique Son, that's what one and only means, one of a kind. Uh, for this purpose, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So whoever believes in Jesus, trust Him, uh, experiences the new birth. We saw here in verse 3, that's regeneration. He has eternal life, that's verse 15 and 16. Verse 17, he'll use the word saved. So a lot of things. He says you, you, you have the new birth. You have eternal life. You're saved. Uh, the, the alternative, as we'll see in John's gospel, is to perish. So the opposite of being saved is to perish, to lose one's life, to be doomed to destruction, and so forth. There's no third option. You know, there's no, <laughs> there's no third option. You're, you either believe in Jesus, or, as we see here in verse 18, you will see you're condemned. Uh, I always think of this uh, poet, uh, Thoreau. I don't know if you, had, if you ever studied him in English literature, British literature, but uh, I wrote, he lived out in New England, he lived out in the woods and so forth and kind of communing back to nature. And um, So uh, he was greatly admired by many people and so forth, but it was, so the story is 
a minister came to him on his deathbed and said, have you made your peace with God? And he, did, he said, I didn't know we were at war, you know. That's that illustration is, you know, hey, I didn't, I thought I'm fine with God. I haven't done anything to displease God. Well, here's the problem. Uh, there's no third option. There's no middle ground, Jesus says. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The mission, Jesus' mission uh, to this world was not to condemn it. In reality, he came into a world that was already lost and condemned. See, there's the key. The fall. Adam fell. That plunged the human race into sin and ultimate destruction. Nobody had to do anything after that. Everybody born in Adam is destined to perish unless, you, unless, you inter, unless God intervenes and a person is saved. Uh, Though not all will be saved, as verses 18 and 19 make clear, nevertheless, the mission of Christ was to bring salvation to the world. In this sense, we'll see in John 4, he's rightfully called the Savior of the world. So he wasn't just bringing salvation to the Jews. He wasn't just a Jewish Messiah. He was that. But he's bringing salvation to the world. And that will be amply illustrated in John 4 with that the Samaritan woman. Uh, verse 18 Whoever believes in him is not condemned. There's our memory verse. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So I say, Jesus came to save a world lost that was already condemned, but those of the world who fail to believe compound their guilt by not believing. In the day of God's one and only Son. So people are condemned already uh, but, of course, our sins compound our guilt. People will suffer greater in hell if they have sinned more, the greater sin. I mean, Hitler's going to suffer a lot more than most people probably will, you know. These, these sins are condemning and deserving of greater punishment. There, is a, there are degrees of sin and degrees of punishment. Um, so you don't have to wait, that's the point, till the day of judgment, as we said. The unbeliever stands condemned already. Verse 36 will say that the unbeliever is under the wrath of God even, amazingly. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be, plain, be seen plainly that, they have been, that what they have done has been done in the light of God. I say the essence of this self-incurred incurred condemnation is now pictured in the symbolic terms, light and darkness. Light has come into the world with the incarnation of the word. Why is it that some do not respond to the light provided in Christ? The question is answered by placing the responsibility upon the character of the individual. People reject the light because their nature is evil. I mean, that's one of the hard... I mean, I don't know, when I was first saved, I remember thinking, why doesn't everybody believe in Jesus? You know, I mean, you get this wonderful salvation and you wonder why these people that you know, why, why wouldn't they want this? You know, it just seems everybody would want this. You know, why don't they just automatically 
want this and, and, and accept what you've got. You know, that it just doesn't make sense to you. Well, of course, here's the answer here, that uh, people reject the light because we come into this world as sinners, born sinners, with a sinful nature, with an evil nature. And therefore we practice evil, and therefore we hate the pure light of God's revelation in Christ. We don't love it. We actually despise it. Uh, we don't want our sins exposed. <laughs> and so we reject this light because it exposes who we really are. I say these verses are not describing how one moves from darkness to light. That is, how one initially becomes a Christian. But it's simply viewing the world <clears throat> from its two divisions as it is presently seen. On the one hand are those who hate the light. They do not... They do so because of their character, their nature, their deeds were evil. On the other hand are those who have come to the light, described in verse 21, as those who live by the truth, literally those who do the truth. They do the truth not because they are inherently righteous. We don't do the truth, you and I. We don't do good things because we're inherently righteous. We don't do them in order to be saved. On the contrary, uh, the reason anyone can be characterized as doing the truth is because of God's prior work. God worked in us first, caused us to be changed, transformed our natures, and that causes what we have done to be seen in God's sight as genuine and true. Now we see the further testimony of John the Baptist. We go back to John here for a second, verses 22 through 36. This section shows how Jesus surpasses John the Baptist and any baptism or rite of purification he may represent. First, let's look at the circumstances. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. They're in Jerusalem. So now they're going to the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. I say after this indicates an interval of indefinite length. Jesus and his disciples left the city of Jerusalem, engaged in a ministry in other parts of Judea. Now we know later in, in chapter 4, verse 2, that it wasn't Jesus who actually did the baptizing himself, but it was his disciples who actually performed the rite of the baptism. Um, John, it says, was baptizing in this area of Enon near Salem. So uh, this is the area we believe that, uh, Jesus, that, that John the Baptist was in. John was also baptizing, so he's also doing it at the same time that Jesus is baptizing because there was plenty of water and the people were coming and being baptized. And notice this sort of parenthetical remark here. This was before John was put in prison. So despite the fact that Jesus' ministry has begun, people were coming and being baptized by John. Thus, John and Jesus were baptizing at the same time. Now, this is a different picture than you get from the synoptics. You might conclude that John was imprisoned immediately after the temptation of Jesus and Jesus went immediately into Galilee. So the synoptics uh, just kind of go over this period very quickly. They have Jesus being baptized, they have a temptation, they have uh, John being put in prison and Jesus goes into Galilee. They, they don't mention this particular part of the ministry that John does. Only the Gospel of John records this Judean ministry here of Jesus simultaneously 
baptizing with the same time John is. Uh, and that's the, apparently the point of the parenthetical remark in verse 24 is to explain what you might see as a discrepancy between uh, the gospel synoptics and this. <clears throat> um, notice Mark 1.14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news. So Mark and the other synoptics have Jesus opening his Galilean ministry immediately after the temptation and the arrest of John the Baptist without reporting any earlier Judean ministry. Now, they're not in error. They just don't report this ministry. So this is an indicator that John has probably read the synoptics. Now, of course, John knows everything. He's with Jesus. But the point is, if you read the synoptics, you get the idea of Mark 1.14. John put in prison. Jesus goes to Galilee. But there's some other things happening here. And so John says, now this was before John was put in prison. There was actually a ministry of Jesus and John at the same time. So he's sort of explaining that. That's one of the reasons it looks like uh, you know, John was written later after the Synoptic Gospels, uh, probably, as we said, in the 85 maybe period after the destruction of Jerusalem and so forth. Verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and certain Jews, a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. I say possibly the clash arose over the relationship between John's baptism and more traditional Jewish practices <clears throat> or the practices of other prominent Jewish religious figures. Now, John doesn't explain what this debate's all about, what's you know, John and this Jewish baptism. It's not really important. What's important is what comes up. It apparently leads to what happens next in verse 26. They came to John and said to him, because they're having these controversies about baptism, hey, you're baptism, and the Jews say this, and then there's Jesus out there. What's, what's going on here? They came to John and said, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing, and everyone's going to him. So, I mean, I'm, I can read between the lines here. I'll read between the lines here through my special revelation from God here. But, I mean, they're probably saying, hey, hey, John, what's going on with this guy? I mean, you know, I thought you were the head, head guy here. You know, you, were, you, you had the lead here. Uh, so apparently a debate with, John, with the Jews was an occasion for John's disciples to um, reflect on the role of Baptist ministry, especially as it related to Jesus, whose own ministry was on the increase. And they themselves noted he's baptizing, everyone's going to him. It sounds like they're probably a little resentful. You know, they're a little upset here. What, what, what are you doing here? Uh, you know, this is, this, is, this is a little strange. Well, here's John's testimony about himself, notice. Amazing, amazing. Uh, because Jesus says about John, he was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Here's the greatest prophet that ever lived. <laughs> and here's what this greatest prophet says. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. This is, there's some good lessons here for each one of us. Here, think about this. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. John responds to his disciples with a maximum or aphorism. A person can receive only 
what is given them from heaven. This is similar to Paul. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? All gifts are from heaven, that is from God, including John's role in redemptive history as the forerunner of the Messiah. In fact, he early denied explicitly that he was the Messiah. So John was content to occupy the place that God had marked out for him, amazingly, you know. Uh, and really, when you think about it, to be content with God's sovereign plan is really ultimately a sign of unbelief on our part. And, you know, it betrays a kind of ignorance. I mean, well, I should say arrogance, really. Um, you know, that kind of wants to put us in the place of God. Um, I always think about it. This is, a, this is a great lesson for us in the sense of, you know, here's John who was a great man, and yet he's willing to accept this role now, this lesser role now that Jesus has come on the thing. And so uh, that's very helpful. Uh, you know, as we look back on our lives, some of you are pretty young here still, but some of you are getting older. <laughs> you know, you have to look back and, and think, you know, things have not maybe gone as like I wanted exactly, uh, like I would have wished it, but I've got to learn to accept, you know, God's plan and God, what God has done and what's going on and God knows best. And that can be hard. I mean, you can get, I've met Christians who are very resentful, very upset about their lives and they, they can, you can get to blaming God and all that kind of stuff, you know, but here's John the Baptist. He didn't, you know, he accepted God's plan, God's role for him. So there's a good lesson, I think, for each one of us in this. Verse 29, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, John says, and it's now complete. He must become greater, I must become lesser. So John now uses a parable to explain his role in relation to Jesus. John is like the friend who attends the bridegroom as sort of a best man who organized the wedding but found his greatest joy in seeing the wedding proceed without any problems. Um, in the Old Testament, Israel is sometimes depicted as the bride of the Lord in various Old Testament passages. So John has his greatest joy here in introducing the remnant of Israel to the bridegroom, to the Messiah. What a great privilege that he had here. Uh, Jesus must become greater because it's God's sovereign will. Uh, you know, whoever God puts in prominence places, that's, you know, God's sovereign will. And that means, in this case, John must become less. By embracing God's will, that's the only way we're going to really find, you know, really true joy in life is, is embracing God's will for our lives. Well, see the testimony about Christ. Like 16 through 21, these verses appear to be the words of the evangelist himself. Verse 31, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one 
accepts his testimony. So the evangelist explains why Jesus must become greater, as John said in verse 30, he alone is from above. That's that same word we had in John 3, 5. Remember, you must be born again, which probably Jesus meant you must be born on a thin from above. Here it is, uh, he who comes from above. Uh, he alone is from above and therefore is above all. By contrast, all others are from the earth. That is, they're finite, limited. Even John the Baptist speaks as one from the earth. He called people to repentance and to baptism in water, but he could not reveal heaven's counsels, nor could he offer regeneration from above. Only the Son of Man, only Jesus, can speak with supreme authority of heavenly things. For he alone testifies what he came from heaven, from what he has seen and heard in heavenly sphere, you know, obviously. So verse 32 here reports the reception of the one from above. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but unfortunately, no one accepts his testimony. This is a kind of repeating of the evaluation that Jesus had back in 311, where he said, Verily, verily, I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not, do not accept our testimony. So generally, for the most part, the Jews, Jewish people, rejected Jesus and his testimony. He wasn't, obviously many accepted him, but many, most did not. Verse 33, whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. By accepting Jesus' testimony as to what he has seen and heard, the believer has certified that God is truthful for Jesus, the one whom God has sent, so completely says and does all that God says and does that to believe Jesus is to believe God. Consequently, not to believe Jesus is not to believe God. To, in effect, call God a liar. I mean, this shows, you know, sort of, <laughs> this kind of points to the deity of Jesus himself. You know, he's, he speaks for God. He is God. But this is so because, you know, that in contrast to other prophets of ages gone past, who had the Spirit, the Spirit was given to Jesus without limit. You know, of course, He is God. And so He is above all these other who came before. Verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. This giving of the Spirit without limit finds its basis in verse 35, the eternal loving relationship between the Father and the Son. Though the Father is the source of all things, remember that 1 Corinthians 8, 6 verse, for yet there is one but one God, the Father, from whom that from indicates source. So this is how the Trinity works. Remember we talked about the, the Trinity, how it functions. Sometimes it's called the economic Trinity or how the Trinity functions. Father is the source from whom all things and for whom we live. And there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom he does things through the Son. Father sort of is the planner the Son is the one who accomplishes things. He died on the cross. And of course, not mentioned here, but the Spirit carries out this work of the triune God. Nevertheless, the Father has placed everything in the Son's hands. So to the one He loves, he has, whose hands He has placed everything, He has given the Spirit without limits. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Obviously then. 
But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. The climax of the chapters now reached, there are only two alternatives. For those who believe there is eternal life that will ultimately be culminated in the resurrection of, the bodies, of their bodies at the second coming. But unbelievers, those who reject the Son, will remain under God's wrath that will ultimately culminate in their resurrection and eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. So again, this present tense has eternal life. We have eternal life. It looks upon this as a present possession. That's that realized eschatology again that John talks about. It's like these things, they're certain. They're definitely going to happen. We have it right now, in effect. All right, we come now to chapter 4, uh, early belief in Samaria and Galilee. And we come now to the interview with the woman of Samaria. The setting is verses 4, 1 through 6. We see the departure of Jesus from Judea. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who, was baptized, who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. He'd been there at Cana, remember, and he came down for the Passover. Then he had this ministry in the Judean desert. And now he is going back to Galilee because the Pharisees are, you know, more opposition. And he wants to avoid that right now. He wants to avoid being arrested and so forth. Uh, there may be a couple of reasons for Jesus deciding to move the ministry to the north, possibly to avoid the rivalry of John's ministry. True, more clearly, the Pharisees were focusing on his popularity. So he's trying to avoid premature hostility, knowing, as we saw in 2.4, his hour had not yet come. Jesus is always aware of what's coming, his hour, his time at the cross. That's coming, but it's not yet come. He has an earthly ministry uh, to fulfill before. Then we see the journey through Samaria, verses 4 and 5. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So Jesus is going now, um, as we see here, um, from Judea, he's actually somewhere out here in the Judean desert, apparently. And he's going back to Galilee up here, but he's going through Samaria. And he comes to this town, Sychar. So uh, this is kind of a map of where Jesus is coming, maybe from, if he's closer to Jerusalem at this time. We don't know for sure. He's coming to this area right here, uh, probably in this area, uh, Sychar. I say here in the notes, uh, well, I won't say that right now. Um, Sychar is in the vicinity of Shechem, I say later. Here's Shechem. This is the Old Testament, Shechem, prominent in the Old Testament. And there are two mountains here, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Um, these were the mountains that they, when they came to the land, they said the blessings and the cursings. Part of the Israelites stood on one mountain, the other stood on the other mountain. And they said the blessings and the cursings, Mount, Mount Gerizim. Mount. Here's Nablus. This is a city. 
this is where uh, the PLO, I don't know if, I guess it's been kind of bombed out now, but when Pansy and I were there in 2000, uh, we passed up this area and we drove through here. This was the headquarters of Yasser Arafat, the PLO leader, remember him? And he had his head, we were going up to Sebasti or Samaria up this area, but we came to this area here. So here's where we're talking about these two mountains, Mount Gerizim here, Mount Ebal here. Down in this area is the Old Testament Shechem. Uh, there's the Sychars down here. We don't know exactly where it's at. It's a village down here. And we know probably where Jacob's well is. This is what it looked like a hundred years ago. So we'll see it looks much more uh, occupied now, you know. But, uh, boy, this is hard. To <laughs> it's going to go back. You can see it's built up here uh, now. But a hundred years ago, this is the turn of the century. If you can see this, uh, if you can read that, there's, there's a Jacob's well that we'll talk about in a moment. And Old Testament Shechem. Here's Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim is here. So here's a modern view of it. You're, you're standing on Mount Gerizim here. There's Mount Ebal over here. Here's Sychar probably down here. The Old Testament Shechem here. It's just kind of a desolation right now. And uh, here is Jacob's well over here. This is uh, more like what a well, what, what Jacob's well probably looked like in that day. I mean, we don't really know what it looked like, but it wasn't much more than that, not what you'll see the modern well looks like today with a church over it. This is what it looked like around the turn of the century. Uh, there had been stuff built on Jacob's well before, but it was torn down, and there's some, but that's what it looked like around 1900. When you go there, if you went there today, I don't think you can go there anymore, but there's the sign that says Jacob's Well. This is what it looked like in 2000 when Pansy and I were there. They were building a church over top, another church over top of Jacob's Well there. And uh, this is what it looks like finished now today. It's inside this church. You go into Jacob's Well there. Um, this is... Um, uh, I don't know why that slide says 17 there all of a sudden, but it does. Uh, there is the well there. So it's all decorated around. You can actually get some water. if you. When we were there, there was about a 25 nuns all around the well. We couldn't even get close. I wouldn't drink any of the water anyway, but, but we didn't get close enough to get any water. But that's what it looked like uh, in that day. So I say here, he's going to Samaria. He's meeting this Samaritan woman. Uh, I say the origin of the Samaritans goes back to the fall of the northern kingdom in 722. Remember, the Assyrians came in. They took the ten tribes captive, right? 722. When the largely depopulated region was resettled by colonists brought in by the Assyrians from various parts of their empire. So the Assyrians had the idea... If you want to keep a people from rebelling, what you do is you conquer their land, you take most of their leaders, and you move them to another country, 
And then you bring people from that other country back into that land. You kind of keep them you know, from rising up. And that's what they did. Well, there were Jews left there. Not everybody was de deported. These people intermarried with the Jews who had been left behind, and the Samaritans were their descendants. We meet them again in the time when, after the Babylonian captivity, and then the Jews return under Ezra and Nehemiah, they opposed the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple in the 5th century B.C. and eventually built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in the time of Alexander the Great. Remember Mount Gerizim there, that mountain to the left over there? Well, they built their own temple there uh, in the time of Alexander the Great. So we're talking about in the uh, early 300s, around 300 B.C., uh, they built their own temple. The Samaritans sided with the Seleucids against the Jews in the Maccabeans revolt. So Alexander the Great conquered all of that area. And then after he died, his kingdom was divided up mainly into four parts. And Israel territory was, was controlled by the Syrians or sometimes the Seleucids. They controlled that area. And uh, the, eventually the Jews revolted in the second century B.C., 167, the Maccabean revolt. They revolted. Uh, and eventually set up their own kingdom again. And uh, so these Samaritans, they uh, sided with these Seleucids against the Jews <laughs> in this Maccabean revolt. And once the Jews got control of this area, they destroyed that John Hyrcanus, who was a famous Maccabean leader, in 128, he destroyed their temple. So you can imagine the relationship between the Jews and Samaritans was not great. <laughs> the Samaritans hated the Jews and the Jews hated Samaritans. I mean, it goes back 300 years here now, you know, because the Samaritans had, well, even longer, the Samaritans had, the Jews looked upon the Samaritans as having a corrupt form of religion that they had, they had, they had taken Old Testament ideas and corrupted them with pagan ideas they had sided with their enemies when Israel was trying to reestablish themselves. Then the Jews had destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. So you can see the hostility here. They hated each other. I mean, Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan. We, don't, we can't capture what that means. It's like me telling you the Samar a parable of the good Nazi. You know, Let me tell you about the good Nazi. And he's, what? <laughs> what? Good Nazi? What? Is there a good Nazi? Well, that's, that's how that sounded when Jesus said the good Samaritan. That's like, these are the most evil people on the face of the earth, Jesus. Well, how could there be a good Samaritan? So uh, I say the Samaritans were greatly despised by the Jews because of their impure bloodlines and their religious deviations from Orthodox Judaism. <clears throat> See here, Sychar was in the vicinity of Shechem, <clears throat> excuse me, as we noted, probably be identified with the modern village of Askar, just east of Mount Ebal and Gerizim, near where Jacob's well is located. The site was originally bought by Jacob and was given to Joseph, who was buried there. All right, let's look at the resting at the well, verse 6. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. I say there's fairly good evidence that this well is still there today and is often visited by travelers. As you can see, there's quite a tourist. At least, at least there was uh, one 
I first th did this years ago, but I don't think you can get on the West Bank now. I don't think you can get into that area now. So at least as far as I know, you can't. So I'm not sure you can actually visit that, but you could. Uh, arriving at, at noon here, you notice uh, it was about noon. Uh, Jesus would be through. Now he's coming from Jerusalem somewhere. We don't know how far. Jerusalem is about 40 miles away. And how long would that take? I don't know. Supposedly you could travel 20, about people could walk 20, 25 miles a day. So I don't know how far Jesus, how many days they had taken to get from where they were to here, but at least maybe a day and a half, a couple of days, you know, to, to get that. Uh, I mean, Jesus goes down to Jericho in one day, walks back to Jericho. Well, that's, <laughs> that is, none of us could probably do, well, maybe a marathon runner could do it. You know, it's 25 miles down there, you know, it's a long way. Arriving at noon, uh, you know, he would be, you know, he'd be thirsty, obviously. If he's walking in the morning, he would obviously get up in the morning and walk. So it's natural he'd go to the well. So now we come to the interview, verses 7 through 26, and we hear this discussion about the gift of God. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples uh, had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? John says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. True. The fact that the woman came along to draw water and that she came at noon rather than the more normal times of sunrise and sunset might suggest she was isolated by the public shame of living with a man outside of marriage. Now, we don't know that for certain, but it might be true. The normal time would be come in the morning to come in the evening, but she's there at noon. Um, this parenthetical statement, you know, verse 8, his disciples had gone into heaven to buy food, might indicate that the disciples would normally have helped him draw water, but uh, there's no one there because they've gone, and so Jesus speaks to this woman. Um, according to the Mishnah, now the Mishnah is, you know, Jewish a law, Jewish, uh, the Talmud, the Mishnah, so, so when you remember when Jews today, Judaism today, Jews accept the Old Testament as scripture and they also, as primary scripture, but they also accept the Talmud, uh, the, you know, the Talmud they study and they learn that, the oral law. So remember there's the written law, but Moses supposedly on Mount Sinai gave a oral law, the Talmud. Part of that's called the Mishnah. And uh, now that wasn't written down until after the time of Jesus, but it was, it was probably all in, it was all in oral form and passed down. So we think these things apply when, when I comment about what the Mishnah says here. Probably this is the attitude. The daughters of the Samaritans are deemed unclean as menstruants from the cradle. So the, the Samaritans are, are viewed as perpetually unclean. They can't be clean. They're just outside God's mercy that's why this John adds that explanatory note. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. They're just unclean. You can't, you can't have any contact with them. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given 
you living water. So if we're distinguished between the gift of God and the living water, then the gift of God is probably eternal life that only Jesus can bestow. What John, John, Jesus promises her is living water, a reference to the Holy Spirit, who is the agent of eternal life. The living water refers to the spring of fresh running water in contrast to a cistern. Um, so, you know, this is what we're talking about here. So that was the problem in the ancient world was fresh water. What do you do about water, fresh water? Very hard. Uh, one of the things I noticed when I went to Israel was there were a lot of these springs, these natural springs. Uh, I've never lived, I remember, you know, I can remember being in North Carolina and my people talking about artesian wells and our springs and stuff like that in the mountains and things. But uh, I've always lived like around here, do we have any natural springs or anything? I don't know. They don't, I never heard, heard about them or anything. But um, people often looked for areas where there were water. And this, this is the, the best kind of water. This is living water. This is fresh water. Because the problem with a cistern is usually most of these cisterns were just water that collected by rainfall. They would dig out a cistern and so dig out a well Sometimes there was an underground water. You'd strike some water. You'd get some fresh water. Sometimes it was just well water, and that could be contaminated very easily with bacteria. So, so this is this is amazing. When Jesus said, uh, "I would if you just ask me," you know, you didn't have to drink from this well. I'd give you some living water. Uh, so ultimately, is your, Jesus is offering her, you know, salvation, not physical waters. He's offering her spiritual life, regeneration. But she says, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? I mean, where are you going to get that at? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, gave the well, and drank from it himself, and did also his sons and his livestock? So I say, you're like Nicodemus who misunderstood Anothin from above. This woman misunderstood Jesus' use of living water. Even Jacob had to dig a well to locate a deep spring that feeds this well, apparently so. Uh, that's not exactly clear, but that's apparently what the case is. Um, the point here is if Jesus could provide fresh running water, the best kind of water, he must be greater than Jacob because Jacob couldn't do that. You know, he had to dig a well. Um, this is this is something very unlikely in her mind. Who, who's this guy? You know, he claims <laughs> he claims something even the great Jacob couldn't do. Uh, it's seen by the way she asked the question. The question is asked in such a way that expects a negative answer. Are you greater than our father Jacob? The answer she expects is no. Hey, you're not greater than our father Jacob. I know that. Uh, Jesus answered, verse 13, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So despite the skepticism of the woman's question, Jesus answers it anyway, though he does not come out and plainly tell her he's referring to, not referring to physical water. So this living water is obviously the Holy Spirit will provide a perpetual inner source of spiritual life. When we're, when we're, given, when we're born again, regenerated, we, the Holy Spirit indwells us, 
we have a source of continuing spiritual life that will never die. Now we see the woman's need, verses 15 through 18. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Still thinking in terms of only her physical needs, the Samaritan woman politely says, Sir, ask for a supply of this water that forever quenches one's thirst. He told her, verse 16, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you are now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now, in order to satisfy the woman's request for this living water, Jesus turns the conversation to her tangled marriage history in order to point out her sin to face the issue of her own spiritual need. Her reply here that she has uh, had no husband is, is an honest, you know, as far as it went, you know, I've had no husband. Um, but Jesus, you know, amazes her here by revealing that he understands her past. He has supernatural awareness of her situation, of her history, of her past. Uh, she may have been married five times. Now, this, this is, gets a little bit of, of a problem here. That's how the NIV handles it. Most translations handle it. They translate the word, the word, this word here on air, husband, call your husband, and I've had no husband. You're right when you say you've had no husband. So she may have been married five times. That's possible. And now we're just living with a man without the formality of marriage. That's how it, you read this. You, you, you've had five husbands, but the man you're living with is not your husband. If that's true, then presumably these marriages ended in divorce or the death of the husband. It's hard to know here. The Jewish rabbis kind of disapproved of any more than three marriages, legal marriages. Um, but I say here, since the word for husband is also the word for man in the sense of a male, some think that the woman had never been married and that Jesus means you're right when you say you've had no husband. The fact is you've had five men. The man you have now is not your husband. Sometimes I think that's the more correct understanding here. It's hard to, hard to know because we have, a, we have a word for male and a word for husband. Those are two different words, but not in Greek. <laughs> the word for male is the word for husband. The word for woman is the word for wife. There's no separate word for wife and woman, no separate word for male and husband. So you have to tell by context whether it's male. So sometimes I've often thought, eh, this is what's really going on here. Jesus is saying, you're right when you say you had no husband. The fact is you had, you had five men, and the man you're living with is not your husband. It, maybe there's a play on words here on this. It's hard to know her. Anyway, <laughs> she's had a very strange marriage or whatever uh, relationship with men here. And, uh, but notice what she says. Very, and this always interests me, verse 19. The problem here, she says, the woman, Sir, the woman says, I see you're a prophet. <laughs> uh, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Uh, because of the woman, Jesus' obvious supernatural ability to know the intimate details of her life, the woman concludes that she must... Jesus must be some kind of prophet. 
so it may be honestly here that she sensed, okay, he's a prophet in a genuine sense. He's some sort of Jewish prophet. And so maybe she genuinely brings up this point of contention between Jews and Samaritans. It's hard to know if she's being completely honest. But I've had this response many times. <laughs> you go out to somebody's house and you start telling them, you know, about the gospel and they will, they will try to divert the conversation away from them to some theological point. <laughs> You'll try to get the point on the fact that you're a sinner and you need to trust Christ and they'll want to divert the conversation to, hey, you know, you Baptist, <laughs> you know, but we Catholics, we, you know, it's always, I've seen this just many times where, you know, that, you know, we naturally don't want to, we don't want to deal with our own situation. We want to divert the conversation away from our own problems and difficulties. And it may be that's what she's doing here, that she's, she's, you know, she sees he is a true prophet. And so she brings up this situation, maybe to divert it away from herself. Uh, I say here, the Samaritans accepted only the Pentateuch as scripture. So the Jews had all, you know, 39 books of the Old Testament. The, the Samaritans only accepted the first five, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Now Moses did not specify the location where God would be worshipped. He didn't say when he wrote the Pentateuch, Jerusalem, because there was no Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been captured. That wasn't captured until David captured Jerusalem. So he didn't. He just, he just talked about a place in the land. Deuteronomy 12, 4 through 6. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose, Moses is saying, from among all your tribes to put his name there for a dwelling. To that place you must go. So Moses says, listen, God's going to pick a place when you get into the land for a central sanctuary and you're going you're to worship there. Only in that place is where you're going to worship. In the Samaritans' own version of the Pentateuch, they've changed the text somewhat. The text reads, The place your God has chosen. Thus they looked to the Pentateuch to find the place for the temple. So instead of saying the place God will choose, their version says the place that God has chosen. So they looked to the, to the Pentateuch to find the place for the temple. They looked to a number of texts such as Genesis 12, 6 through 7, which records that Abraham built an altar once he entered the promised land at Shechem, which was overlooked by Mount Gerizim. Remember, Abraham did build there at Shechem. Mount Gerizim was the place where the blessings were to be shouted when Israel entered the land, Deuteronomy 11, and so forth. So what happens is the Samaritans, remember I said, had erected their own temple on Mount Gerizim because the Jews refused to... Uh, allow them to participate in the rebuilding and worship in the temple in Jerusalem in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember I said the Samaritan temple was then destroyed in 128 B.C. by the Jews themselves, the Maccabeans. And so, you know, this is really a point of contention. Uh, the Jewish writer Josephus says that temple resembled the one in Jerusalem. Uh, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
Jesus explains that in the light of the historical situation, there's little to be gained from a debate about the merits of Mount Gerizim, where they had their temple, versus Jerusalem as the place to worship God. For a time is coming when the requirements of the Old Testament economy, which specified a particular geographical location, would be superseded by a new order. So a time is coming. Now that's probably a reference, you know, to Jesus' death and resurrection. You know, at the time, my hour has not yet come, but there's time a coming when you, you plural, you will worship God not on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. That'll become, that's, that won't become important. We're entering a New Testament age where God will not confine His presence uh, to a particular place. Well, I see that people are out there in the hall making all kinds of noise, <laughs> unfortunately. So let's stop here for this week. And we will, Lord willing, look for you next week. Thank you.